Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rob Gray. Rob, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Gord. All right. So we're going to dive right in. So let's go ahead and Rob, give your background, qualifications, what you're doing now, and then we're going to get right into the episode. Yeah. So I'm originally from Canada. I'm a, uh, I'm a professor at Arizona State University, kind of in this area of human factors. So kind of applying psychology research and into practice design, skill development. So I, I do that. I do a lot of research. I've published a lot. And the last several years, I've worked as a consultant for a lot of different sports, governing bodies, Olympics, individual athletes across a range of different sports. And most recently, I kind of, I, I have a podcast too, a perception action yes, podcast. And I've, mm-hmm. I've written a couple of books on kind of explaining kind of this kind of new approach to skill acquisition. And so that's kind of what I've been focusing on most recently. And your research area has dealt quite a bit with baseball. Is that correct? Like, Yeah, that's okay. the main sport I've studied and, re- and done research in. And what kinds of things are you looking at just to give us an idea of what your crossover with skill acquisition is? Yeah. So I've done in my background, my PhD work was on vision. So I've done a lot of work on vision and batters, what they look for to pick up the pitch, how we can train that. And I've done a a fair amount of pitching now too. So how can we better design pitching to pitching practice to keep pitchers from getting injured? Um, I've had a bit of a focus on VR training for different sports. That kind of stuff. So but most recently it's, you know, practice design. What what kind of pitches should we be facing? What kind of how much should we be varying? Those kind yeah. of things. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> hearing you say practice design, you're already getting into kind of where the worlds of sports performance and I guess skill acquisition and then learning sports specific skills, I feel like intertwine and where mm-hmm. as we'll get into later, some of the mightiness, because when you say practice design that immediately puts in your head a sport, baseball, Mm -hmm. football practice. But where it's starting to bleed in now is how do I organize training in strength and conditioning for my athletes, particularly in the speed, agility side of things. And like a lot of people in sports performance, that's how I got to know you or know of your Mm -hmm. work is through your podcast, the Perception Action Podcast, which I forget later. Uh, listener, please check that out because it's incredible. <laughs> it's been long, long running, and he has episodes that dive really deep, probably that we'll be able to today on this topic. Um, the other place that I got to know you is through Altus mm-hmm. because you presented for Altus several times and you talk about movement variability. You talk about, oh, I think you've done some on practice design or session mm-hmm. design. And when we talk about that, we're talking about how do we utilize and set up and design practice to maximize transfer? Yeah. So how, how does what we do in training or practice actually impact and transfer to the field, which is a big term in strength and conditioning? Is, is that a, a fair assessment of, of why practice design is so important? For sure. Yeah. We want things that we learn in practice to, to come out in the game and impact your performance in the game or competition. But a lot of things we do don't. <laughs> right. Right. Every, everyone's experienced the, the situation where you get an athlete to do move in a certain way that you want or do something and then they get in the game 
it completely and you're like what happened <laughs> where, where did it go so yeah. um even me yeah that happens to me all the time still so yeah that transfer is the million dollar you know goal mm-hmm. that we're really we really want right absolutely so today's overarching topic is i don't want to say a new we're, we're going to talk about like a new approach to skill acquisition speak or skill acquisition because it's not really new it's just maybe not no. as well known especially here in the states we're talking about learning new movements we're talking about skills so if you're not familiar with that term and maybe rob can actually give a give an overview of what, what we're talking about there, what we mean. And I want to contrast kind of the traditional view that a lot of us have learned in school, how we learn to teach movement, how we learn to practice movement, and then this alternate view. And the reason this is so important is because it is gaining steam in sports performance, the world of sports performance. And I think it resonates with a lot of people. I think when they hear the viewpoint, like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. But when it comes to the application, it it's, can become difficult. Yeah, I, that, that's a great way to put it, Corey. And I, I think, and that's where you're totally right, it's not new. And I think that's why it resonates so well. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are doing a lot of these things already. Really good coaches. We're just, it's just been more formalized and attached mm-hmm. to kind of a theory more recently. But yeah. a lot of the people have been doing this already. So th- I, th- I think that's a good point to make to the, at the start. Okay. So let's start with the traditional view of motor learning, motor development, and skill acquisition. So can you just go through as best you can the basic tenets of that viewpoint that a lot of us have learned and also why it became and is the predominant view, particularly in America? Yeah, I know it, it is. It's a good, a good way to start. And I think it's really important because people, this, it's so ingrained in us. This, <laughs> these assumptions are so ingrained and well taught that people have forgotten that they're assumptions. Yes. And they're based on ideas about how people learn, right? People forget about that. Like some people mm-hmm. say, I don't need a theory of motor learning to coach. I always say you have one. <laughs> You've just <laughs> forgotten that it's based. But yeah, the fundamental idea is, you know, this traditional approach. Some people don't like me using that word, but I still see it all. You know, this idea of the correct technique. So whether you're swinging a baseball bat or doing a squat, there's one ideal correct way we do it. The coach knows that, right? You come to the coach and they give you instructions. Bend your knee like this, hold the weight like this. So you, they tell you that. Then you repeat it. You, tr- you learn through repetition. So you try to repeat the squat or the swing over and over again. In baseball, we use a T, put the ball on the T. So you simplify, you get the swing down, the mechanics, the fundamentals, whatever you want to call it. And the coach is going to correct you, right? Any kind, of, any kind of variation from this ideal, you dip too far in the squat. No, that's wrong. <laughs> you, you stride too far in your swing. And then the idea of that kind of, Movement variability, we want repeatability, right? The goal of training, we want to be able to repeat this movement. We're going to train it kind of in isolation. We're going to train your golf swing, tennis stroke, bats, baseball swing. The fundamental technique first, then you're going to be able to put it into the game, right? Once people throw balls at you, then you can pull out this swing that you stored in, you know, kind of whether you want to call it a motor program, yep. muscle memory, yes. kind of this idea. So that that's kind of the fundamental 
And so everyone says nobody coaches that way anymore, but I see it all the time still. This kind of idea of pulling people out of the game and focusing on technique of like a tennis stroke or a forehand, they just they see it all the time. Well, so. it's so, it's just so natural to break things up. If you, if you take a complex mm-hmm. movement or a, a movement that has a lot of facets to it, we see this all the time with things like Olympic weightlifting. That's why we have mm-hmm. progressions in strength and conditioning. It's this attempt to break up a skill into component parts teach each component part and then put them back together and like you said like i i feel like even even if i you know i've researched this kind of the ecological view for several years i still find myself doing it very naturally because again it's just the way that we're taught it's the way that we think and it's just i was never presented with another way of doing anything <laughs> another way of learning or teaching yeah. so i guess what are the pitfalls of this is there research supporting this? Like you mentioned, it's a theory and it's not the only one. Where are there, are there major gaps in the theory? Like why has the ecological one, I guess, somewhat caught up or is gaining steam? Yeah. Um, for anyone interested, you know, I have my, my website, I have perceptionaction.com. I have a, I keep a running tally of studies <laughs> that make direct comparisons between kind of ecological approaches and these kind of traditional ones. And yeah, the advantage, main advantages we kind of point to is, you know, the main single one is that ecological, the disadvantage of uh, this traditional approach is you're not very adaptable, right? You're not, you can't adjust well to changes in conditions because you've learned how to do it this one way, right? You show up to the gym and you got, you're a little bit tight in your muscle or you're fatigued. You, the one way you learn doesn't work anymore, right? You need to adjust, adapt. It kind of stifles any kind of creativity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's actually a really interesting body of work showing that it actually makes you more prone to injury, right? And it makes total sense. If I'm emphasizing doing it the exact same way every time, I'm putting the successors on the exact same tendons and joints. Whereas if I allowed for some variation, which is where we're at, the alternative we're going to talk about it soon, then they were done distributing the stressors. So there's some really interesting work mm-hmm. on it. And then kind of a lot of the, what a lot of us kind of get grumpy about is that it's just not very fun (laughs) for, for kids, especially for kids. It really, if they stand in line to wait to do this technical movement and then they, they, they get rewarded at the end by actually playing the game, the thing they came there for. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So they. So a lot of people believe this is kind of pushing kids out of sports really early, this focus on technique and being perfect in form and all these kind of things. So well, that's kind of the main things people point to as disadvantages. Yeah. Well, and no one, no one is saying that I should point, no one is saying that it doesn't work, right? And we're talking about relative effectiveness, right? You learn that way. We learn almost right. anyway, <laughs> including placebo exactly. effects, right? So no one is saying that it doesn't work. They're just, you know, trying to say that maybe there's a better way. To yeah, the key word for me is adaptability because yeah. baseball is such a good example because I remember learning to swing by literally breaking every single part down and you, you know, you, you maybe start a swing and then you literally start a few inches of the swing and then you go back and then you start and you just get that down mm-hmm. and then you're literally piecing it together. My swing was beautiful. I was the ninth batter. Like we, we know so mm-hmm. many, everyone knows these athletes who ha- have seemingly beautiful technique, 
they seemingly are quote unquote good movers, whatever that means. They might have all the strength and power characteristics you could ever want. And yet when it comes to time to perform in the game, you just don't see it. And when we're the the concept that like is so embedded and I wanted to use the word ingrained because that's always the word that's tossed around. We need to ingrain something. We need to ingrain the movement. We've got to practice it until it's ingrained in us. We've got to, we've got to build the motor program so that it's there and can be called upon when it's, when it's needed. And that does not really lend itself to adaptability. Like what, what if, yeah, you're, you need to make these small adjustments or you need slight movement variability in order to accomplish your task. Well, do you, you can't have a motor program for every single possibility. That's the part that for me has never made much sense. Once I really started to think about it and get yeah. into this and yeah, we know that repeatability exactly will lead to overuse, but it doesn't leave any room for, uh, I guess the, the term that I always go back to is g- the gamer. Like the player that when the lights are on and he or she's in competition, they sh- they just find a way to make plays. Or another, yeah. I guess, way when I, when I talk about this to other people is just general athleticism that you'll, that you'll see. Like the people that we think, oh, they're, just, they're an athlete. It's usually because they have, they're very creative movers. They aren't always the ones that we would point to and say, oh yeah, they are. They have perfect technique or they look really nice and pretty. There's a disconnect there, in my opinion. So let's maybe then transition to a different viewpoint. And I, I kind of jumped the gun. I, I mentioned ecological <laughs> viewpoint without, without defining it. And so same thing, I, I'd like you to go through the main tenets. What is the rationale of the theory and how does it differ from this kind of the traditional motor program theory. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 for sure. Yeah. So I'm, you know, it's, I, I call it the ecological approach The kind of the, the theory now is sometimes called ecological Mm -hmm. dynamics. It's kind of, it it actually has a long history. It's not, it's kind of combining some ideas that were already there. Yeah. The central ideas are kind of that, you know, there's not one, one technique, right? There's lots of different ways you can achieve a goal. And in fact, you have to do lots of different ways because the environment around you is always changing. Internally, you're getting fatigued, your muscles getting tight. You know, you're going to have to come out with a different, if you want to keep throwing the strike in baseball, you have to do it differently. <laughs> like there has to be some variation. So, and then one of the kind of main thinkers in this area, Nikolai Bernstein, he coined the phrase repetition without repetition. So we repeat our goal, but not by repeating our movement. Right. We have to move slightly different nearly every time. And there's a, a great quote I always I use in my, it from Rafael Nadal, where he has this wonderful quote where he says, you know, I play tennis for a long time. I've never made the same shot twice. Right. He says, every shot's different. It's different spin. I feel different, different angle speeds. And he's like, I have to come up with a different movement solution. So, so we want to focus on kind of developing variability is a good thing. Right. This movement variability is necessary. That's kind of the thing. So it really changes the the role of the coach from the instructor who knows the correct solution to more of a designer and a guide 
that's going to help the athlete learn to find the solutions themselves, learn to move, giving, it's giving the athlete problems instead of solutions is kind of the fundamental way, right? And then instead of there being a program that you pull out, there's more, there's this concept, we had this big term, self-organization, where your body kind of figures it out on the fly, almost not, not completely like that, but your body kind of has this capacity to organize itself if you just, right. Yeah. So that we're not pulling out these pre-stored programs for everything. Yes. And that's, as I got introduced to the ecological viewpoint, that is what resonated with me. Because when you think about it, it makes so much sense that your environment will dictate the movement patterns that are displayed. A super easy way to think about this is walking on dry cement versus walking on ice your movement pattern immediately changes because of the environment. Now, that's a, that's a super easy one. That's very low-hanging fruit. Like People get that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to mm-hmm. chaotic sporting sport environments, it becomes a little trickier to like tease these things out because the hardest thing for coaches, I think, is where do, where do I start? How do, how do I start teaching a skill? And this is a problem that strength and conditioning in particular is facing because when we, you know, I would say this, these things are really starting to seep in when it comes to the development of agility and teaching Mm -hmm. like strength, strength conditioning coaches, like pride themselves on being teachers of movement. We got, we got to learn how to move. We got to learn to how to move correctly with correct technique. We've got to have proper change of direction mechanics. We have to have proper landing mechanics. But removed from the environment, as you would say, uncoupling movement environment, and then there's perception in there. If we uncouple that, they are no longer the same thing. So if we want to, as you mm-hmm. would say, keep them coupled, keep the movement and the environment coupled together, as it would be in, in, the, in sport, in competition, how do we start? Like, how do we tar- start the, the journey of teaching a skill? That may be foreign to somebody. Yeah, that's a good, great question, Corey. And I think there's kind of I I got a few presentations this year, and I in my newest book I talk about this I, this distinction I like to make between an action capacity and a skill. The the, the for example, the ability to change direction is an action is an action capacity. It's like your flexibility, your height, <laughs> your right, like a, agility is a skill. Right. Um, and what I would do, how would I distinguish those? Agility has a purpose, right? I don't go left just for fun, right? I go left because you're coming at me for the yes. right, right? It's, it's functional, purposeful, goal driven. I want to get around you. I want to tackle you. I want to, whereas in the uh, capacity, is just you're just developing the kind of the capacity in and of itself. Like, do, like doing a squat in the, in the weight room is developing the capacity of leg strength. The goal of the movement is the movement itself, right. right? It doesn't mean it doesn't require a lot of skill, like, and that it's easy, but it's not serving another purpose. And But I think that the two fit together, need to fit together, right? And the problem comes for me is when we treat skills like their action capacities, like we can store up agility by training you running around cones, you store up this ability to move left and right that you can pull out and be skillful in a football game, mm-hmm. right? So, so like for simple things that we, you know, that how can we 
take a, a, a drill or an activity where we want people to like to move laterally for agility and do it in a way where it's go has a goal. It has a, it's driven by the same information. So the, the, one of the simple examples we always use is taking the classic. So the classic drill of dribbling a soccer ball around cones, right? Nobody, we don't really like that in the ecological approach because it has no goal. You're just doing what, because the coach told you, why should I go left around that next corner? Right. It doesn't matter. There's no reason, right? It's because the coach told me I have to go one way or the other. What we do is we take that, we play a game called soccer tag, right? So you have a kid controlling the ball and another kid or the coach runs at them and tries to tag them just like the kid in the kid's game. What's the difference there? Now I'm moving my one thing. My eyes are up, not down at the cones, but I'm going to move the left because you're coming at me. I get to pick up information about you, how you're moving and use that to control my movement for a purpose get around you, stay away from you, right? That's true, real agility to me, right? It's purposeful movement to serve a goal. Obviously, that your ability to do that is going to depend on your action capacity of a lateral, like lateral acceleration and change of direction. The better you can do that, the more potential you have to keep away from the other kids and be agile. So that's kind of the way that I think of it. Try to, so there's, there's, I think there's still room for developing the capacity of, of things and uncoupling. You know, we do a lot of, unco- I do uncoupling drills in, in baseball training to get people to improve their rotational acceleration, right, for swinging a bat. But that's not the same as doing oh. a batting. <laughs> then I, want, I need to try to get them to put that into their swing some yeah. way, right? So, uh, so that's, that's kind of, that's right. No, that's okay. <laughs> the answer, but. That's a kind of how I think of how to do, do, do these kinds of yeah. things. Yeah. It really depends on what you're trying to develop. Okay. So I have a couple things with that. First thing I want to I want to zero in on is this word control, because that's, I think, where a lot of sports performance coaches in these types of scenarios, they will really hone in on because if something looks like out of control or if they feel like an athlete cannot control their limbs, and when we're talking about agility, change of direction scenarios, coaches are primarily looking at base of support, uh, like how wide is it, how narrow is it, joint angles, and where's the center of mass? Where, where, How are all those three things interacting? And due to those interactions, can the athlete move what is perceived efficiently? And so the fear is always, well, if we start with something that is more coupled that involves perception that involves decision making those mic those like joint angles or these micro like the the movements pattern the the kinetic chain is not going to be what it should and having been a coach who did used to start with cone drills before getting to what is the you know the term is always closed drills before open drills I always did see a little bit of something there. Like, okay, I think sometimes when we started with something that was uncoupled, it did seem like they could control their base of support center of mass relationship a little bit better when we got to open. And now once I learned more about dynamic systems theory and ecological approach skill acquisitions, I actually skipped the cone part. I I almost went straight Mm -hmm. to something that's coupled. And, you know, like I've had coaches look at the videos I've done. And they're like, dude, 
your athletes could be a lot more, more efficient movers if you started with something a little less coupled. And so what, how do we make sense of that? Like, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I, you know, I, you know, I think there's a few things there. I think, you know, the, back to your first point, you, you do see often the kind of, the word we like to use is emerge, right? The things you were planning to train anyway, come <laughs> out when you let them just go in a couple. The second, you know, I think there's kind of this misconception of like, there's two extremes, like there's dribbling around cones or there's letting them play a full game yeah. of soccer, right? There's lots in between. That's kind of in the, in the ecological approach where we can simplify the task. We can do things to emphasize, um, you know, to kind of guide them to the, the fun, the, the movement patterns we want, the efficient movement patterns, right? It, 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 well, while they're doing still the coupled activity, right? You know, like a simple example, I was talking to some, there's a great weightlifting study, right? So People doing the clean and jerk. And this is another, another misconception I think people have about this is there's still, as your role of a coach, you can still say, I don't like what your, your movement solution you came up with. The one you self-organized to, you can still say, I don't like that. Not going to work in the long run. It might hurt you. I'm going to guide you away from that. And there's some recent research, look, clean and jerk, you know, people are doing, you know, let them kind of learn, explore. They do like, the technique where they throw the bar away in front of them, right? To, to get it up in the air. And any weightlifting coach is going to say, oh, that's not efficient movement, right? It's, it's going to chance you're going to hurt yourself. But the traditional way we would do it is a real technical description of, okay, bend your knees, do this. The alternative is to use you know, what we call a constraints that approach. So can I add something to the training session that's going to push you away from that solution towards where more efficient one I want? And Examples of that are putting like holes in front of you that you'll hit with the bar, putting chalk on the bar that you have to put, leave a chalk mark yep. on your shorts yep. when you lift, things like that. Putting you on a little platform that if you go to lean too far forward, you fall off. <laughs> like the, that's an extreme one, but all these things. So the, we're, we're kind of guiding the athlete search without being so saying you have to do, but all those, and then all those ones, right? We're not telling them exactly how to do it. We're just adding something that is not going to, what they're right. doing is not going to work yeah. anymore. So that's kind of the, the this middle yeah. ground of where we can keep it coupled and more representative yeah. and game-like, but still kind of, kind of guide yeah. the athlete with the way we want. So I want to compare and contrast those, the two examples you just gave a little bit, because this is where mm -hmm. even I get just a little bit, you know, confused about the gray area. So in the soccer example, mm -hmm. we are really going we're going for creativity we're going for multiple movement solutions given the what the environment presents uh there's a lot of perception happening because you've got to be aware of the other players if there are boundaries you have to be aware of where the boundaries are at you have to work within those boundaries more like a small-sided game decision making is like really being challenged now and then the weightlifting scenario it's seemingly you're employing the constraints-led approach to almost guide repeat of repeatable movement. So where does creativity live in the latter example, even though they are both technically constraints-led approach? Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, that, that's a good example. I think in the first one, you know, we could still do things like use a footsole that's not easier to control. We can, so we... 
we can mm-hmm. scale things back and uh, within the small side of the game to make kind of not as complex as, as and we do that. The weightlifting example, I think that is important to like recognize that this idea that we need this rep, a repetition without repetition examples kind of scaled, right? Depends on the skill. Like repetition without repetition in American football is extreme, right? To be a good NFL running back, you need multiple ways yeah. to move, right? The plays are always different. To be a good sprinter, the idea is you still need multiple ways, but it's way, way less because the variation in the environment of sprinting is way less than football. So I think that's kind of the idea I would apply to the kind of the weightlifting example. The variation you need in doing clean and jerk, the idea is it's still going to be there, right? There's still going to be, depending on your grip, depending on how you, you know, the idea is you don't get a perfect start every time. Your muscles fatigue, you know, there's going to, you're going to acquire this adaptability. It's going to be relatively small compared to team sports. And the idea is that kind of doing those constraints Again, we're not telling you the one way to do it. So we're allowing you, we're kind of giving you a kind of a bandwidth or yeah. boundaries more and letting you move within there, I think is a yeah. good way to think of it. And it's going to, it might be fairly small for certain activities, especially if you're going to, you're going to lift really, really heavy. Like there's only so many ways <laughs> that you can sure. do it and be successful. Yeah. Right. But that's the kind of the way yeah. I think of it. Kind of this bandwidth or boundaries. A bandwidth yeah. is a very common, like it's a hot term right now. Like the. The bandwidth of mm-hmm. technique or, or yeah. how do we consolidate or how do we make sense of people's individual little individual variances in movement patterns yet accomplishing a goal really effectively and it, using the weightlifting example there's no doubt that if you have movement variability and that little bit of adaptability you're going to be more successful because as you mentioned you will not get a perfect start every time that bar will not always be in the same place every time Gosh, like there's even if you just take a very isolated sport like weightlifting that doesn't seemingly have much of a perceptual cognitive element, there's so many things that can impact performance. You know, Mm -hmm. if we're going to talk constraints, we can talk like individual constraints or organismic constraints of, you know, early in the episode, you mentioned a tight muscle or you're tired. If you have movement solutions for those, you are going to be more successful. So I, yeah, would you agree with that? Like that's that's really where we want to end up. Yeah, that that's a that's a fundamental idea and you know, I could see some people saying, you know, what's the difference between a really narrow bandwidth and an ideal solution, right? You're you're the semantics. Part of that, you know, I think part of the thing we also when we were talking about the advantages of doing some of this is a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of great work Nick Winkleman is one of the big ones. You know, this guy getting you overly focused on your body is what we do in a lot of traditional coaching, right? We talk, think about your knee, do this, like your baseball example. Oh, man. You're describing of learning yep. the swing. I'm so you were thinking, what's my elbow doing? Whereas thinking about, oh, don't hit the poles when I'm lifting the weight or get chalk on me, right? You're thinking about the external environment. So that that's kind of another advantage of doing this. But yeah, 100%. I think we take it, we, this kind of small differences in the both internal and external environment, even when we're doing something that seems very repeatable, like lifting a weight, there's no other person you're dealing with, but there's still all these kind of small changes and even like, you know, slightly different grit, like that changes how muscles activate and foot position and, and things like that. So yeah, I think for sure, the more you can 
be able to come out with different move patterns and adjust to these small variations, the, the better you're going to be. Absolutely. You know, our coaching classically the way is very internally focused. Move this joint at this time or make sure your knee doesn't do this or make sure your low back is always this certain way. I think personal training, to a degree, strength and conditioning, but because strength and conditioning is in, in large groups, it's a little less, it doesn't lend itself as much to being so honed in and focused on these little movements that are occurring. But personal training, it's very pervasive that you're, you're just basically telling the person how to move every single rep. And like, oh, if you don't move, if you, if you move an aberrant way a few times, you're going to get hurt. And pretty clear that that's, that's not good for injury prevention, even though, we, even no. though that's the guys. Yeah, they, we're yeah. doing this to say safe, but actually the more you reduce variability, what is, what is the guy from UNO say? Like variability is life or something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, that's where, how does that apply then for things like someone like personal trainers, where you're trying to keep people healthy, you're trying to make, help people move better. And yet we want to actually have some variability in, in our movement patterns uh, within a bandwidth. What, where, where can personal trainers, yeah. I guess, take some of these concepts and apply them? Yeah. You know, that's where I think, you know, if you think uh, kind of moving away from learning a technique, like keep your knees over your toes, you know, to at least some of the sessions you do thinking about exploring, mm-hmm. like, okay, let's try to do a lift with your feet narrow, your feet wide. Let's try to do a lunge where you're in this position versus, you know, think about kind of exploring and adapting and, and you know, instead of just repeatability, repeating this one exercise, this one form, that I think that's super beneficial. And maybe you have to reduce the weight, obviously, if you're going to get someone to do a different kind of movement. And that's sometimes hard because everybody's like chasing their <laughs> yep. personal bass and, and stuff. So, but I really think, you know, you, I'm almost guarantee you would find your personal best would go up <laughs> if you exactly. took some time yes. off to do those kind of exploration mm-hmm. focused variability yeah. focus. Well, I think par- part of this, part of it is that we've borrowed so much from the sport of powerlifting. Like the sport of powerlifting is so, you know, deeply embedded in what we do in a fitness center or the weight room. And there's an aspect like with an Olympic lift, if you've got a very, very, very heavy load on your back, there might be only a few movement solutions for that. Like there's, there's probably Mm -hmm. in the bandwidth is quite small, but what I have seen very interestingly Mm -hmm. is a new take on the conjugate system for why it works because you're constantly rotating variations of movement. And because of that variation, mm-hmm. it's almost like this constraints-led approach of if you've got a movement or a seemingly perceived movement inefficiency, let's use a, like a particular barbell, like maybe a, like a cambered bar or a safety squat bar mm-hmm. to guide you and nudge you towards something that is more optimal or at least that hits that weakness, which has always been the, the premise of that system. Mm-hmm. It's just a different viewpoint now. But again, we're still mm-hmm. trying to guide someone towards something that's seemingly repeatable. I, that's just an interesting trend I've seen recently for why someone might want to want to do that. Have you seen that at all? 
Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's the same, like I said, we're the same kind of idea of kind of, we, we can't, I, we, there's kind of movement area of movement space we want people to be. And it, this kind of latches on to another very big concept that's growing within the ecological parts of attractors. Yes. Right. There's certain key conditions that the, the phrase I like to use in is conditions, not positions. Right. Yeah. So to lift a barbell effectively generate enough force, you need to meet certain conditions of force transfer and mm -hmm. stability. But they're not achieved by doing the exact same body position every time, right? There's certain just conditions of, you know, you know, if the hip hinge and weight proximal, the distal motion, there's these kind of general conditions of effective force transfer that you need to meet. So I think that's kind of what we're trying to push people towards. We want repeatability of the outcome and kind of repeatability of, of meeting these conditions. So it, it, I know it is kind of a, <laughs> it is a subtle kind of difference, not the repeatability of the exact yeah. technique. I think that's what's kind right. of changing. The exact movement. Yeah, pattern. for sure. Yeah. I, I want to, before we kind of start to wrap things up, I want to, I want to touch on back on self-organization because mm -hmm. this is another term that really gets thrown around a lot. And I'm sure you, I'm sure you want to pull your hair out sometimes with how it's referred to. Hey, yes. Can you, let, let's, let's make sure we officially define self-organization and what you mean by that. And then where people just totally miss the boat and where people go wrong with that concept. Yeah. The basic idea of self-organization is that kind of the, the components of a system organize itself, right? Be, you know, and the classic example everybody uses is a flock of birds, mm -hmm. right? flock of birds flies around there's no boss bird that tells everybody else which way to turn when to go left run well all they're doing is avoiding them, yep. each other right? and through the, all of them obeying kind of this local mm -hmm. rules you get this beautiful pattern of control and there's no executive brain overall thing and the idea you know a lot of people is your body works that way too right your bicep and tricep and shoulder they they work together to kind of, kind of achieve this goal without your brain having to tell each of them exactly what yeah. to do. That you need to rotate this much. That's the idea of a motor sure. program, right? You, you rotate this much, you flex that much. The the more general idea is, you know, you you work together and they kind of organize they organize themselves to the exact the specifics of what they have to do. That so that's kind of the general idea. I know it's a, it's a weird concept for for a lot of people. And a lot of people kind of, the biggest thing that people confuse it with is self-regulation. Like I think through things on my own, right? It's, it's not just learning how to do stuff where you think, okay, when I want to do a shot, yeah. I do this. That's kind of a lot more cognitive and self-regulation is happening. That And the idea, part of the reason motivates us is in a lot of things we do, it's so fast and, and quick, the adjustments we make. We don't have time for our brain to send signals down say, you do this, you do that. We have to let our system kind of do it on its own. And I think most people have experienced it when you, you kind of get in the flow yeah, and you're not really thinking about things. And the, the one egg example I gave of, of, to someone yesterday, this is a great commercial they had a long time ago of Larry Bird. He's explaining to Red Auerbach how to shoot, how he shoots. And he's talking very technical. I do this with my elbow. And then he, he hits a shot and then he, he goes, okay, watch. I'm going to try to not do this right. I'm going to put the ball way behind my head. I'm gonna do that. And then he shoots and it goes in, <laughs> right? Of course, because his body is a self-organized. Like, 
it, 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 it body adjusts, like his shoulder adjusts. Yeah. It was out rotors and made that shot go in. So he, that's why he could shoot off balance and one-handed and right. It, 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 your body's adjusting to these different conditions if you just kind of let it. Instead of having a program, like watch Steph yeah. Curry, like all the... Steph Curry is a great shooter, but he doesn't have one shot. Right. He has yes. of shot. He's off balance running. But because it, does he have like 100 motor programs that he pulls out for every... No, his, his kind of, not on a conscious level, but his shoulder, his elbow detects that his shoulder is at this angle and adjusts. And they organize together to get the hand to the release right. point. Yeah. This is something. That's kind of the idea of self and I think what's it's pretty apparent when you again look at how these things are implemented the motor program traditional theory of practice design does doesn't really al- allow for creating oh. creative mover and problem solver like that but the ecological one does and I think that's the attractiveness of it but so like where from a self-organization and and trying to achieve that where where do people go wrong with it? Like where where have you seen just like a, a misapplication of that concept? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of the same thing we were talking about a bit before. The kind of people assume that just means just yeah. let the athlete do anything they want, right? Oh, okay, just give throw the weights in front of them, mm-hmm. they'll figure it. And and yeah, they try it and they do an awful looking inefficient <laughs> movement, like you said, and like, oh, it doesn't work, right? The idea, you know, is accepted. You know, not not, not everything we self organize to is going to be good. We we self organize to solutions that work for the immediate thing you gave right. me to do, right? And they're not necessarily going to transfer. They're not necessarily going to yeah. transfer to to conditions. So so that's kind of a the it, it, again. I like to think it's as a coach you're guiding self organization, right? Like the the weight lifting example I gave. We're not telling the person how to. Do a clean and jerk, but we're guiding them towards a solution. So, so I think that's the problem people have with it. They kind of think it means just you can't do anything. You can't say anything as a coach. You can't do anything. Yeah, you just got to let or, them do whatever um, they want. That's not what it, it means at all. Does, it also doesn't <laughs> yeah. mean, at least I don't think, it also doesn't mean that you just play the game for agility. No. You, no. Uh, yes, that is the most ecologically valid scenario. But that doesn't mean that's the right scenario for learning more movement solutions or becoming a better, more efficient, more creative move. So that I guess this this actually leads into my last question before we before we wrap up. It is really hard not to combine the theories because again, we've known the traditional theory for so long and uh, it was actually quite a, a popular paper written, I don't know how long ago, where like the big wigs of each camp got together and wrote wrote this paper about like, mm. how much is there different really? I, I can't remember what movement skill conference it was where I think is that or one of your Altus presentations where you're like, listen, you can't you can't ride the fence. <laughs> like yeah. if you if you yeah. if, like combining them theoretically just doesn't work yet it is so hard not to do in practice and yet it does seem like there's aspects of it that seem to work so what's your advice on that of if people went after this go and they want to look more into this because obviously they're hopefully going to check out your podcast and and research this and we'll talk about other places they can go at the end 
where does it leave us as far as practice goes about trying to combine or wanting to combine the theories? Yeah, I think that part of the issue is people think they're combining the theories, but they're not. Like they're combining the, some of the central concepts and the effects. Like, for example, the effects of variability, doing variability in practice drills could fully be explained within yep. motor programming, yep. right? That's contextual Absolutely. interference. But yeah. so, so you can fully explain the benefits of doing variable practice within his, right? But it's not, this doesn't have the same in reason why it works isn't the same. So I think people are kind of misunderstand that a, a little bit sometimes, but, you know, I just kind of, you know, I would kind of just start with, you know, if you, there's a drill, you know, for example, I work with, you know, baseball, I work with a coach. Obviously I don't want a baseball coach using batting tees mm-hmm. very often, right? It's all clearly uncoupled yep. movement. But the, I, what I start with, if the coach really believes in that, I just start, you know, why? Why am I doing this show? What it, What is it for? How does it fit with the rest of my doing? And, you know, I think that's more important than thinking about the under exact mm-hmm. theory, you know, the mechanisms and stuff. But I, I find if you do that, you start to kind of move. You get more consistent in, in one way or the other. Right? You know, I, 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 I try to meet people where they are that, that I'm working with. But a, a lot of people do, you know, for the most common combination that I see in terms of actual applications, people, well, I love this idea of self-organization and doing more game-like practice and coupling after I teach them the <laughs> yes. fundamentals, yep. right? I get yep. a lot of that. I want to have, you know, I need to teach them the mechanics of a forehand yes. for tennis before I let them play. Um, you know, I, I guess what I would say to that is, you know, couple things. One, okay, if you really have to do that, can we just do a less of it? <laughs> like instead of half of a practice before, like I see some tennis practices 45 minutes before they're hitting a ball against another person, right? They're actually playing tennis. <laughs> so can we do less? And what I try to do is, can you just, like we talked about those movements emerging, can you just let them play and constrain and think of a good kind of, kind of game just let us see if that comes out first, right? If you have, if you let kids play and then you have a kid that's hitting a a tennis shot with both like square to the ball with their feet, not like they're one foot behind another, if they're not, it's not coming out, then okay, go pull it out, pull them back and do some more kind of isolated things. To me, that's still consistent with kind of the ecological approach, but, but rather than having, you know, having to do those boring technical things Mm -hmm. first. Let's, let's try to actually get in the game and see what happens. But yeah, that, you know, but I would say just, you know, try some of these methods for yourself and, and, you know, but mainly what's the purpose? What, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to make creative, good decision makers Mm -hmm. on the court or guys that are going to do exactly what I want them to do in a particular situation? Like they're military, (laughs) you know? So I just kind of, kind of thinking, thinking through it. That's the main thing I would do rather than, you know, thinking, is this aligned with this yeah. theory or not? I mean, I would imagine a lot of, a lot of the answers to that is to teach the movement. Is that, is that like what you, what you get as far as like the answer to the, why are you using it to yeah. We yeah. gotta, we gotta ingrain the movement pattern. And that's, that's yeah. where I guess even I, st- I still get, you know, all right, all right, what if I'm literally trying to teach somebody a new movement pattern or a new way to move. How do we start that? So, yeah, I guess, you know, thinking, what are the real, you know, essential mm-hmm. parts? Of movement? 
Like what has to be there in your mm-hmm. view and what can be allowed to vary? Like you like, by example, tennis will go look at Nadal versus yeah. Federer. Nope. They don't look alike at all. <laughs> right. But they do have, that's not to deny they don't have some fundamental things about their movement yeah. and calm that you have to have to be a skillful to like they have to be able to change traction power to be a good yep. tennis player. That has some fundamental ways of they, they change direction. So I think, you know, identify those. And then is there ways that I can kind of design an activity that is going to push someone to do those kind of things instead of breaking it down and describing yeah. it and saying, you know. How about literally, uh, you know, we, we've talked or in other, other times, other places you've talked about just like scaling back the amount of information that's involved in an activity. How about like literally just slowing movement down? Is that something that has been, because there are times where I'm even like, okay, I, another term you've used a lot of times is the best, the best equipment for agility is another person or something like that. Like I I took that. I mean, I went all, I went all in on that as far as like the way I trained my athletes, but, um, the information present very, very on like day, like day Mm -hmm. one of the off season, we would have everything we did was coupled, but very limited information. And there are still times where I'm like, should I both limit the information present and slow it down so that some of these like, you know, body angles, base of support, center of gravity can be, I guess, focused on a little bit more They're like their focus of attention can be diverted a little bit better. I don't, it depends how you do it for me. I'm and so slowing it down by you know, using a heavier ball so it doesn't move as fast or using the pump. One, I've been doing a lot of work recently with people doing martial oh, arts. Cool. And one of the things we use a lot is constraining mm-hmm. the opponent, right? So maybe you say the opponent, your defender can't run as fast, <laughs> you, right? It can't come at you as fast or they can. They're not allowed to do like in the martial arts, they're not allowed mm-hmm. to use their arms in this to defend. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of a coupled activity, but they're, they've, we've constrained the opponent. Um, so those kind of things, yeah, I, I think if I, what I don't like is slow motion okay. movements. Like I'm not a big fan of, of like doing a slow motion golf swing or a slow motion kick. It's kind of the issue the, the, the I think the constraints are so different and the requirements mm-hmm. for the movement become so lax when you move slowly Yeah, they, that you really, you know, it, Unless it's kind of just to get the kind of a feel yeah. and, and things, but I, I would much rather keep things yeah. more, you know, yeah. And usually when you do slow motion things, you're really, you're isolating and pulling out of the context yeah. anyway. Well, even um, think about from a kinetic chain standpoint, completely, di- they're completely different. The yeah. rhythm of the movement yeah. and yeah. things like that, but to get the feel of something, oh man, that's that, that phrase is, is the one that just mm-hmm. sticks in my brain of like, I want to say they should get the feel of something, but I also know that <laughs> yeah. I don't want to waste time by doing things that aren't going to transfer. You know, I'd rather yeah. try yeah. to encourage adaptability via the situation and environment than, you know, spend time trying to make sure this like warm up drill looks really perfect or this warm up activity looks perfect. Yeah. yeah. So, th- so yeah, martial arts. I used to do Taekwondo and I mm-hmm. cannot. For, for a sport that you would be seemingly think adaptability, variability mm-hmm. would be a huge advantage. The practice and learning of it is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. 
here, kick this target yeah. that's in the exact same spot 20 times over. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, but the, oh, but then yeah. let's go spar after that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what? everybody has the image of, of Bruce Lee, right? Hitting the same block of wood oh. a thousand times, right? That's yeah. the image everyone where, yeah, it's really interesting. Some people are getting really creative with how they're, but yeah. If I, the other, the other area I've started to had some people interested in is training police. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Which, again, is if ever there is a situation where you need adaptability to unpredictability, yes. Yes. right? The police officer, they're never gonna get a real yeah. life scenario that matches something yeah. they train for. Yeah, no. Ever. Right? It's always, oh, yeah. So they need to be able to do on the fly pick up, okay, this is a threat for me. This is a you know, this this is a threat of someone ambushing corner not because they learn some rule like because they can pick it up directly from the environment and, yeah. and adapt yeah so yeah but so yeah it's really exciting to see this kind of coming yeah because you can see like once you get into it, you, the applications are endless like the, uh, the mm-hmm. relevancy of how it can help somebody perform better move better you know be a better athlete be a better police officer it just makes so much sense. And I hope yeah. that came through in the episode. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, and it, it, it's hard like, because kind of, uh, I think, I don't think I ever answered the question of why the traditional view is still so popular and green. I think part of it is it's just comfortable and it feels like yes. progress. Oh, man. Right. Oh. You start to look good in what you look better immediately because you're doing this one thing yes. over and over. <laughs> right. And people, well, you can measure simple things like how long it takes you to get through a course yes. of codes. They can measure your time and you get faster. Yes. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very comforting. And in the moment, it looks, whereas the ecological approach, I always say, is more, we're playing the long yes. game, right? We're, yeah. we're, we're, it's going to take longer to these things, this come out, this adaptability, but in the long run, you're really going to yeah. see the benefits. Oh, yeah. the, the short term improvements, that is, Yes, that's huge because <laughs> yeah. it goes into, yeah. hey, this is why I'm good at my job. Look how much better they got in only 20 minutes. But we know that short-term improvements in motor performance does not mean that it's retained. Like we can get into all the retention and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear that mm-hmm. the research says that it's not the case. <laughs> it's it's if things can get messy and that that's where learning occurs, those transfer the best. I mean, that's a, that's a whole episode on its own. So. I hope hope that that at least, you know, if you're a trainer or coach listening to this, that we're able to show just a different viewpoint that you can dive into. And Rob actually has some resources for you. He has two books that you could go buy. (laughs) So Rob, why don't you go ahead and tell about your books and uh, that we can go ahead and wrap up today. Yeah. So uh, start off with everything you ever wanted to know about me, you can find at perceptionaction.com. That's where I have my podcast, my research and yeah, I had two books that come in last once. The first one's called How We Learn to Move, which is basically explaining to the kind of the person you just want to get into it, the logic of yes. this approach, mm-hmm. ecological approach. So the, the ideas of self-organization and repetition without repetition and kind of the adaptability. And then the second one I just, just came out later last year, How We Learning to Optimize Movement. It's kind of building on that, talking a bit more about getting into the concepts a bit deeper and how I think of it as beyond just learning the basic coordination, how to actually yeah. really <laughs> skillful at it yes. as an athlete. 
Absolutely. Yep. Be, be ready. If you go check out his podcast, be ready. Have your notebook like handy. If it's a 10 minute episode, <laughs> don't let him yeah. fool you. That 10 minute episode will have like, you'll, you'll have like 20 pages of notes. So <laughs> yeah. And you might, you might want yeah, to not want to start at the most recent ones. It's we're pretty yes. deep in the 400 and Absolutely. something episodes and they're pretty deep but in the you, weeds. You just so, got to dive so. in. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your time today. And I hope that this conversation was useful and I just appreciate you coming on. My pleasure, Corey. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.